Well, good evening. I have titled my message tonight, The Upside-Down Kingdom. And to me, that's a funny image because I think of a kingdom that's turned upside down. I imagine castles upside down. I think of them balanced on the tips of their towers and moats suddenly losing their water due to gravity. And of course, kids and alligators falling out too. But there's another way in which we use the phrase upside down. And if you've ever heard anyone say everything's upside down, you may know that what they're really saying is that things are turning out unexpectedly, really backwards from what they thought would happen. In fact, that saying goes back to the Middle Ages when they used to say all is top set down. And it meant the same thing. So, for example, if the sky is bright blue and not a cloud in the sky and all of a sudden it starts raining lightly, somebody might say everything is top set down or upside down. And what I mean by that title of the upside down kingdom is that becoming a citizen of and living in God's kingdom are different than what you might expect. In fact, you, you might be surprised by what you learn over the next several days, both during the evening and morning sessions. Now, what do you think of when I say the word kingdom? Do you think first of a king? Well, kingdoms certainly need kings, and I'll bet, though, that most of you didn't think first of a king. But instead, especially you kids, thought first about a castle with a king, but also with knights and with peasants. And since most of you have never been part of an earthly kingdom, our mental images of a, of a true kingdom, at least in our minds of a true kingdom, are likely taken from stories that we've heard or, or seen, stories like the tales of King Arthur and his knights, or perhaps the tales from Disney like Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, and so on. And in all of these stories, one can find several common elements, a king, a nobility who are either wealthy titled people or powerful knights, and of course, dirty peasants. And while some fairy tales center upon the life of a good-willed peasant like a Cinderella, well, even those tales usually end up, don't they, with the peasant becoming royalty or nobility? It simply was not desirable for a dirty peasant in a kingdom to stay a peasant. Everyone wanted to be rich and powerful. Now, many people think of the kingdom of God in the same way. They imagine that the wealthy and the powerful and the influential here on earth will also be a part of the nobility in God's kingdom. They don't want to be peasants, after all. And if you have your Bibles with you, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting with verse 18. And because this is God's holy inspired word. Would you stand as I read this to you? 1 Corinthians 1, starting with verse 18, Paul is talking about the foolishness of God, and he says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where's a scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God 
through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I want you to let that word from Paul soak in for a moment because I hope you heard or that you saw all the times that Paul talks about the foolish or what we might call the upside down nature of the message of the cross. When someone doesn't do or doesn't say what we expect, we may be tempted to say that they are foolish. What is so unexpected and upside down about the message of the cross? Well, look at the next several verses there. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. And you see right there, Paul's saying, referring to the mighty and the noble, those are the people in earthly kingdoms that we admire. The knight in shining armor and the lords and the ladies, but that's not God's primary target. And then the next verse, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and he chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong, what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let no one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So what is this foolishness of God that Paul is talking about the foolishness of God is divine wisdom and power demanding faith. God demands that we believe in that which we have not seen on the basis that he said so. Believe a flood will cover the entire earth, that a nearly hundred-year-old woman will bear a child, that the walls of a fortified city will fall down by walking around it seven times and blowing trumpets, that fire from heaven will consume a water-drenched sacrifice because I said that it will happen. Now, none of that is something that anyone would expect And it seems like utter foolishness, and yet because God said it would happen, suddenly what appears to be foolishness is wisdom. What one item of foolishness about the kingdom of God is greater than all the foolishness I just mentioned from the Old Testament? The greatest foolishness of this is this, is that God saved his people through a Jewish carpenter who died outside the walls of Jerusalem almost 2,000 years ago, whom he personally resurrected and made king of the kingdom, saying, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. All the angels of God will worship you. I will cause your enemies to be made a footstool at your feet. And at the mention of your name, the universe will bow and proclaim that you are the Lord of lords and the king of kings and the Christ to my eternal 
glory. That, dear brothers and sisters, is the greatest foolishness of all. A Jewish carpenter convicted of blasphemy who died a torturous death of a common criminal is the king of the kingdom. Not only that, but God has said, go into all the nations and preach that gospel. Preach the foolishness of God. Preach the illogical, the irrational, what men call madness. For what they call foolishness, I call wisdom. And that's what I was talking about earlier when I said that the kingdom of God seems upside down. It's completely unexpected and in many ways the opposite of what we think it should be. Take, for example, what Jesus says in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. There we learn how the poor in the spirit are the ones who will be blessed. How those who mourn will be comforted. How the meek shall inherit the earth. And in Matthew 5, meekness flows naturally out of being poor in spirit and in mourning over sin. The word there in Greek, in Matthew 5, for poor is takas, which is often translated by the English word beggar. It's a person who's totally dependent upon the gifts of others. Someone reduced to begging in a dark corner for food and drink because they cannot work. And the one who is like this not only mourns their condition, but he or she is meek, meaning that there is no thought of personal righteousness or ability to help oneself. All that is left is total and complete dependence upon God. But to be meek, you have to realize that you are poor in spirit. And being poor, poverty, well, that's a relative concept. When we talk about economic poverty, for example, for some third world tribes, just having a bag of fruit and vegetables and perhaps a bundle of firewood would be to possess great wealth. But most people in the first world countries can go down to the grocery store and and buy those things for little cost. And of course, Jesus is not talking about economic poverty, but about spiritual poverty. And if poverty is a relative concept, well, to whom... Do we compare our spiritual wealth or lack thereof to each other? Well, that's what many of us do. We say I'm better off than that person because I read my Bible more than they do or I've memorized some verses and I go to the right church or we think I understand doctrine better than they do or I consistently attend Sunday mornings or I homeschool after all. But the Bible never says be better than your neighbor. The standard of Scripture is God's holiness. And we are to be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. So when God appears to Moses, for example, and invites him to be his representative before Pharaoh, and Moses objects that he's not worthy, that he can't speak well, well, it's true that Moses wasn't worthy. God didn't respond to him with, Moses, stop putting yourself down, buddy. You are somebody. You are eloquent. That's what the world would say, right? What God said was, yes, you're partly right. You are unworthy. 
Now as to your ability to speak, stop looking at yourself and start looking at me. The fact is that I made your mouth. I will give you the words to speak and the eloquence to persuade. I'll give you the charisma to be heard. I will teach you what to say and how to say it. You just need to be obedient. You just need to go to Egypt. See, only one man was worthy and perfect, and that was Jesus Christ. That's our point of comparison. To have fellowship with God in eternity, we must have the spiritual wealth of possessing the righteousness of Christ, who was an always perfect, who lived only to please the Father, who fulfilled all of the Ten Commandments and the holy standards of the Father, who went willingly to suffer a death as a cursed criminal, so that no other would of his people have to bear the penalty. But that's not where we start, is it? Given that we are born in sin and that our thoughts and desires were only wicked all the time, we're nowhere close to that. We start spiritually destitute, and so compared to that perfect holiness and meekness of Christ, even my best efforts are filthy rags. And somehow we must realize that we are destitute. Blessed are those who, through the merciful work of the Holy Spirit, actually do realize their poverty. That they can't fix the problem by themselves, no matter how hard they work, no matter how smart they are, no matter how strong they may be. And that realization of hopelessness and helplessness should break the heart, and that is mourning over sin. And so we see why God says in the Bible that he dwells with those who have contrite and broken hearts or spirits. Until we actually see that poverty, we can't see God's riches. Let me say it again. Until we actually see our poverty, we can't fully see God's riches. Solomon writes in Proverbs 16, 5, everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. And there he tells us how pride is the great enemy of meekness. Pride convinces us that the standard of spiritual comparison is one another and that, that we are righteous without the atoning work of Christ. But the person who is meek and poor in spirit, by contrast, realizes that if it were not for God, not only would he or she die in, in their sins, but also anything that they actually possess, including the good gifts that God has given them, such as intelligence or physical skills or any other thing, well, they would actually misuse to serve their own glory if it weren't for God's work in their heart. And there's something wonderful that happens when we acknowledge that everything good in us, our gifts, our talents, our, especially our goodness, everything good about us comes from the Lord. And the moment we get to that realization is the moment we can truly glorify God for his good gifts. It's the moment that we, we recognize that same excellence in others. I mean, think about that. The moment that you can begin to realize that every good thing that you have is from God is the moment you can be thankful that God gave it also to other people. And in the process of thanking God and rejoicing with others, amazingly, we start to forget about ourselves. And that is the heart of being meek. 
I'll tell you what, though, that way of thinking, comparing ourselves to the perfect holiness of God, realizing our destitution, relying wholly on God, that is completely upside down compared to the way the world thinks and operates. You may remember the disciples in a conversation they once had with Jesus. Luke twenty two twenty four says that they argued over who would be the greatest in the, in the kingdom. And James and John, they were smarter, of course, because they brought their mom. <laughs> and they asked her to campaign for them. And so she came, you know, a good Jewish mom used to, to doing some matchmaking and, and setting her children in the right place, came and asked Jesus if he might be willing to let them sit on his right and left when they came into his kingdom. And you say, seriously? Yeah. This proud mom wanted her two boys to be the second and third most powerful people next to Jesus. And what did Jesus say? Matthew 18, 4 says he told the disciples, well, first of all, he pointed to a nearby child, and he said to them, whoever humbles himself as this little child here is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And they all looked at themselves and, and said, like a child? Well, what's powerful and heroic about that? How does that fit with being second and third in command at the king's hand? Those should be the knights. Well, Jesus had some news for the disciples. Instead of the strong and smart and rich being exalted in his father's kingdom, the poor and the ignorant and the weak are there, raised up by God. The most childlike. Well, as I said, the greatest challenge to meekness the greatest challenge to right perspective is pride, which cuts across all aspects of life. There is a pride, for example, in Leviticus 26, 19 of power. And King Nebuchadnezzar exemplifies that well in Daniel 5, 20, where he lifts up his heart and his spirit, it says, was hardened in pride. And there's a pride of knowledge. 1 Corinthians 8, 1, Paul says that knowledge puffs up Whereas love edifies, and he says, if anyone thinks he knows anything, he knows nothing yet, as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. That's true knowledge. And every single one of us struggles with pride. And yet none can stand that trait in someone else. <laughs> Hardly any person except a Christian ever imagines that he's guilty of pride. And even Christians are slow to see it in themselves. Pride, pride is in essence competitive. It's, it's not so much being pleased with having something as it is being pleased with having more of something. I like that illustration by C.S. Lewis when he says, we often say that someone is, is proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but that's usually not the case. They're proud of being richer, more clever, better looking than others. And here's the, the, the point to Lewis's thing, a statement is that if, if everyone else became equally rich and clever or good looking, there'd be nothing about which to be proud. Because it's the comparison that makes the person proud. It's the pleasure of being above the rest 
And once that element of, of comparison and competition is gone, well, then pride is gone. But pride is so pervasive in all of us. We cannot afford to let it stand in the way of being poor in spirit and meek. What form does pride take in your life? Do you have any conversations with your children today about pride? Do you believe yourself to be better than others in some characteristic or some ability? And does this cause you to think less of another person? Does one person out there find themselves sometimes saying, I can do it myself, and because you want things done your way, you refuse the help of others? That type of pride starts when children are young and demand to put on their shoes without help and then progresses often to commanding other children with regard to the best and only way to play every game and then to correcting parents in the middle of conversations until at some point many children even begin telling the adults what to do and where they are wrong and believing in utter confidence that they know what is best. Are any of you lazy in your schoolwork or employment? Not because you don't want to do the work, but because the work is easy enough for you that you can get by with the minimum? Usually that's the result of a self-centered, self-focused attitude that says, I don't want to put out the work necessary to strive for excellence and fully utilize the gifts that God has given me because my time and my pleasure is more important than the sacrifice that would take. I only need to be better than the next person. I only need to be as good as what is expected of me. Do any of you get overly offended when misunderstood or mistreated? Is it because you're frustrated that people don't acknowledge your efforts? If you're not recognized for your effort, do you feel the need to make sure someone knows what you did? You try and drop hints, and if they don't ultimately realize, then you help them out. <laughs> this is what I did. Do any of you respond to discipline with anger? Instead of responding with gratitude and knowing that discipline, especially from a loving parent, is for your own good, do you become offended by the correction and show it by stomping off, glaring at whoever disciplined you? Does your response communicate, how dare you, how dare you discipline me? Are any of you described as being argumentative? Do you always feel like you have to make your point or have the last word or have people agree with your interpretation? All of those examples are subtle but often ugly expressions of pride. And if pride is the greatest obstacle to meekness, we need to conquer and slay and crush it in ourselves. You could start with memorizing passages like 1 Corinthians 1, Matthew 5, 1 through 5 that we read earlier. If God has chosen you, chances are that you are one of the foolish or the weak or the base that God determined to exalt so that he would receive glory and not you. Is that humbling to think about that? I'm one of the chosen. Yeah, you're one of the foolish and the weak and the base. And it is humbling to think that. But friends, that's what we all are. 
Everyone, whether we realize it or not, is powerless without God. And bankrupt and helpless and unclean and unworthy. No person can work themselves into the favor of God. Children, hear this tonight. No person can work themselves into the favor of God. Do not exchange the truth for a lie that somehow you can work yourself into God's favor. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.31, He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. God told Jeremiah in Jeremiah 9, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Nor let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. You know, I'm, I'm partly addressing you children tonight. There are a lot of you in this room. But this also goes for your parents. But I do want you, you children, to hear this in particular tonight. This is a very tempting time when we get together for Presbytery for you all to try to impress one another. And some of those traits and characteristics that I was talking about, they can boil up to the surface and be very clear expressions. And you may not even realize what's motivating you or what that looks like. And I want you to hear this passage. Do a lot of you think that you're wise? Do not glory in your wisdom. Do some of you glory in your might or in your physical appearance? Don't do it. Do you glory in, in the position that you have? Maybe you come from this family or that family and boy, everybody's always glad to see that family and, and so you have a privileged position. Don't glory in that. Glory in this that you understand and know Jesus Christ. That he is the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For it's in those things I delight, says the Lord. And who are you ultimately trying to please? Your friends, yourself, or the Lord? And I challenge, I exhort you these, in these things, I challenge you in these things, because we all, it appeal, it, adults just do these in more subtle forms sometimes. And we need to think carefully upon these passages that compare ourselves with God and reveal our need for his mercy and his strength because God resists pride and not only that, he hates it. And I know hate is a strong word, but that's the, what the Bible says. Proverbs 8.13 says, pride and arrogance I hate. In fact, Proverbs 16.5 says that the proud heart is an abomination to the Lord. And you're not going to get a stronger word than abomination. So remember, God loves the broken and the contrite heart. And, and when I say that, also know this, God neither desires prideful self-exaltation nor does he want false modesty. He doesn't want fear. 
He wants spirit, enlightened understanding that everything that you have, even if you are talented, praise the Lord, because that came from God. Even if you're smart, praise the Lord, because that came from God. That's what true meekness is. Everything that you have that is worth anything is because of God's grace and is to be used for his kingdom. Stop for a second and and just ask yourself, because you know yourself the best. Do I believe that I am spiritually poor and that whatever I have, I have because God gave them to me and because he wants me to be a good steward of those things? Do I realize that I'm just as bad a sinner as the next person? 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, You who makes yourself different from another, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you didn't? And just before that comment in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul writes, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool. That's good advice, that he may become wise. And then he goes back to talking about the wisdom of the world being foolishness with God. Now listen to this next part. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, everything is yours. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. And I hope you hear that because Paul is saying, let no one boast about themselves, let no one boast of men, because everything is yours. And one of the things mentioned is the world. Don't boast because everything you have received worth anything has been given to you by the Lord, and part of what you have received is everything. Phil and Kevin will talk more about that in the next few evenings, but let me just ask you this. Would you feel the need, we talked about pride being competitive earlier, would you, would you feel the need to say that your house is bigger than mine and compete with me if you knew that your father owned the entire city, including my house? No. And the amazing upside-downness of the gospel is that spiritually impoverished, sorrowful beggars are given the inheritance of the king of kings. We are adopted into the family of the Lord of Lords and like Mephibosheth, we come limping into the royal throne room only to be invited to sit at the king's table and called kings and queens. And near the end of his ministry, Jesus told the people, I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. And an abundant life, literally in the Greek, is, is life to the full. What could be more full than inheriting the kingdom of heaven forever? And in the parables, Jesus describes that kingdom as being a treasure of such value that any investor would in his joy sell everything that he has in order to buy it. And I hope that you are seeing this irony. The treasure of greatest value is given to those who have nothing. You don't buy that treasure with money. 
or the other things the world values, you buy it by recognizing that without God, you own nothing, you have nothing to offer, so kill the pride that keeps driving you to be self-righteous and self-sufficient. Because if you keep going down that path, the only thing that you will get is the praise of men. As I said at the beginning, all of this is upside down. But you know what Paul says? He says it's not only foolish. He says it's a stumbling block, this message that we're talking about tonight. He says it's a scandal and an offense. And he reasons this way. He says, if I were to preach what my audience wants to hear, if I were to preach to the Jews' rules and regulations and condemn the Gentiles, boy, they would be applauding me and welcoming me to be speaking at all their events. But if I did that, Paul says, then the offense is totally gone because that's what the world wants to hear. They want to hear their message. Omit the great truths that explain who the greatest in the kingdom of God is and how God saves his people, and you will eliminate the foolishness. And there will be a lot of people that will come to hear that message. But what happens when we do that is we actually strip the message of any life-giving power. We render it completely inoperative. And what we do is discard the very power to raise men and women from death in a desire to get their praise. In an attempt to make the message more acceptable and right side up by the world's standards, as John MacArthur says, we are becoming ashamed of the gospel. And there's no wonder that the masses will stream to those who will proclaim a deluded and inoffensive, scandalless message because the message contains nothing in it to offend the congregation at all. There's nothing in it to awaken the lost from their slumber. But I'm afraid that many go out the same way they came in, and that is captive slaves of the devil. Oswald Chambers once warned, we must never confuse our desire for people to accept the gospel with creating a gospel that is acceptable to people. How we define the problem will define the gospel. And the problem, friends, is the wrath of God over sin. And God has answered that problem with the foolishness of the cross. He he took these vessels of clay and he filled them with his Holy Spirit so that the excellence of their glory might be of God and not of us. And we are to be passionate about that message. Paul said, Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words. You hear hear that theme over and over and over again. Not with the wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be ineffectual, but Christ sent me to preach the truth of redemption. And when men say that's foolish... When men say that's illogical, when they say that's irrational or unfeasible, that's upside down, remember what God said. The world looks at reality through the tinted glasses and filters of sin, but I am going to tell you, says God, the way that it really is. 
And this is it, that Jesus Christ came in the world to sin, save sinners. And if you want to grow in meekness, don't measure yourself by those standards. Measure yourself by the holy standard of God and then realize that God did the unthinkable. The transcendent creator of the universe took on flesh and died the servant on a cross for you. I want you to hear these things. The one who lives forever and ever, whose very name means I am the great I am. I am that I am. The one for whom a thousand years is as a day. The one who is not bound as we are by a watch or a calendar. He loved and died for you. And your faith is not a religion of fear or pride, but it is one of meekness because you look not within at what you have done, but to Jesus Christ to see what he has done. You look to a Savior who calls the dead from the tomb when they still reek of their sins, a Savior who promises never to leave or forsake you, even when you go astray, who promises to intercede for you daily, and whose righteousness has been imputed to you, his blood-stained righteousness for your own filthy rags. You look to a good shepherd who will lose none of his sheep and who declares all that the Father gives to me will come to me, I will lose none of them, but raise them all up on the last day. You look to a Savior who was crucified, but who conquered death in the grave, who rose again, who ascended into heaven, who is even now ruling and reigning, and all the while praying for you. You look to the one Jesus Christ who came to do for you the very thing that you could not do for yourself, for he came to seek and to save that which was lost. You look to the one who sought you. Sought you out while you were stranded. And about to be consumed by sin. and crouch, While sin crouched outside the door ready to devour you. And Satan prowled about like a ravaging lion. The good shepherd came to you. And I hope you are excited by that, brothers and sisters. It may be upside down, it may be foolish to the world, but it is gospel good news to me. Praise God. Let me pray. Father, you are the gracious and holy and mighty and loving and Wonderful God, you are the holy, perfect one. You are a consuming fire, but you are also grace and mercy and love. And all of those perfectly coexist. Lord, I pray that we would have the courage to look up that we would stop looking down at ourselves, looking across at other people. We would stop in our pride comparing ourselves to silly standards. And we would instead look up at our perfect and mighty God and marvel at who you are. Lord, help us to see ourselves as you see us. As people 
who were dead in our sins, but who would be made lovely through the love of Jesus Christ. And help us to be so thankful for that, so aware and knowledgeable of that, that in the meekness that you create in us, that we would be a blessing, a living letter, an example, a testament to the world of the great love of Jesus for us. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.